Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Final Girl Wines. Final Girl Wines is a boutique mom and pop wine label any horror lover can be proud to share. Whether it's a quiet movie night on your couch or a Halloween gift for a friend, there is a Final Girl wine for every palate and every occasion. Their wines have scored 90 points and above in Wine Enthusiast magazine at prices that won't break the bank. Join the four-bottle wine club by Halloween to get four bottles for just $88. Member benefits include 10% off all future purchases, and you can cancel at any time. Go to www.finalgirlwines.com to get your wine today. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, hashtag turtle, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you have been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A. B-O-L-I-K-D-V-D.com and visit our sister company cauldron-films.com Tonight's episode is also brought to you by Fright Rags. Fright Rags is celebrating the spookiest of seasons with all new collections from Elvira, Trick or Treat, and every film in the Halloween franchise. Treat yourself with a new shirt, hoodie, lounge pants, or even socks. All officially licensed and available exclusively at fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners will get 10% off their first order using Colors of Dark 10 as the code. Again, that's Colors of Dark 10 for 10% off an order from fright-rags.com. Welcome to the Colors of the Dark podcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I am your co-host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. We are co-hosting a horror show together. Can you believe this? I know. This is kind of, it's exciting. It is exciting stuff. Um, So for those of you who aren't familiar with Elric and I, we have been co-hosting together for like eight years now. Um, This is our fifth show fourth fourth show uh we started with a show called a video show called inside horror yeah and we were on killer pov for many years which morphed into blumhouse's shockwaves we, and this is our whole new interpretation for us yeah and so for this show in particular um elric and i we definitely want to try something drastically different um not only will we be bringing in a lot of fun segments and games and and just general weirdness that you're going to hear later on in the episode um but we kind of just want to celebrate our love of the entire genre not just the canons not just the halloweens and the nightmare on elm streets the weird stuff and the stuff that's hard to find and the forgotten gems and hey i found this weird movie from 1962 that nobody has seen but me um, so it's going to be really kind of a celebration of everything. As that's why we, yeah, that's why the title. So we were drawing obviously from a, a Sergio Martino uh, Giallo film, All the Colors of the Dark, but we thought Colors of the Dark, we, we are wanting to look at the full spectrum of horror. And that's uh, something that keeps us going are the deep cuts, the undiscovered gems, the weird subgenres. And I think yeah. that's going to be a big part, but also talking to, to friends on topics and, um, and bringing in guests when we want, but to not, not to be one thing. So that's the goal yeah. with this new show. 
is it's, it's, it's a lot of everything and it's a celebration of everything all in one scoop. Uh, as an introduction, though, because we've done this, we've talked for eight, seven years, so we know each other pretty well. But I thought to introduce uh, us to you a little, rather than just saying something like, these are the five films I like, I thought we should just say, what are the first three films that come to your head when you think about your podcasting co-host? <laughs> so I will let you go. Well, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I will. I'll go first. So okay. when I think of Elric Kane. Um, I am going to start with the most obvious one, what every single person at home thinks of when they think of you, Elric, which is possession. Never. And never heard of it. I know. So this is the wildest story, um, but definitely kind of speaks to our history together, is um, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was working for Fangoria. I'd been working for Fangoria for um, a number of years at that point, and they relocated me out here to head up some of the film stuff. And I didn't know a lot of people, but I knew Matt Curry Holmes. And he introduced me because he was like, oh, you like your weird, geeky, you know, super niche horror. You need to talk to Elric Kane. And I met you once. And then I found out that there was this retrospective 35 millimeter screening of Possession. And I um, was kind of like, you know what? I don't really know anybody. I'm going to buy tickets for everybody that I just met. And I'm going to take a whole bunch of people. And I did. And I bought you a ticket and said, meet us there. We're going to see it. And um, that was like the first time I actually like hung out with you in any capacity was yeah, at that possession diner. screening. Um, we went to a diner afterwards, a whole bunch of us, and just totally geeked out. And I remember this one specifically because at the screening, I talked about how I had sent letters to the filmmaker via Facebook about how much I love them. And you, you go... Becca, that's me. And I said, what do you mean? I am sending letters to him about how much I love his movies and want to see these ones that aren't released. And you were like, no, no, I am him on Facebook. It, it's true. On the Zulowski <laughs> Facebook page started about nine years ago. That was me because no one was celebrating him. Uh, I would gladly give it back to him, but he's no longer with us, sadly. But but yeah, no, I, I was. it's always hard when a movie you love that's really under no one suddenly becomes the big it's you know, huge now. Yeah, it becomes, especially in the Indian cinephile, it becomes like the the popular film. So that always makes me shirk a little. But I I love this film for a long time, and and it's such a crazy, passionate, bizarro um, horror film. Okay, but we can't we can't possibly go. I know. I can't. I can't. Every one of these crazy ones. So no, the, the next two. The next two is not a horror film, um, but it definitely I'm reminds break me. The rules. I'm breaking the rules right now. The next one is I'll call it a thriller. Um, last year at Marion Bad from 1961. Oh. Wow. Okay. And that, yeah, it's, it just always reminds me of you. And that is just your love of French art cinema, um, thrillers and just kind of weird. It was dark. It's a, it's a head trip movie. I would say. Yeah. It's a head trip movie. Um, and if I remember correctly, you, did you have a poster up for it and jump cut? I did at one point. Yeah. And I definitely, yeah. I have a couple of that film. Yeah. Yeah. I'm big fan. But that might be a hard deep cut for some people. <laughs> it might be. But yeah, I definitely, I consider that one to be like a fringe horror. Um, and then the last one is Tchaikovsky's Stalker. Oh, wow. Um, You're going with all the art house stuff. Right? Because, wow. well, that's one that I had, I for the longest time thought I was like the only person in the world who had ever seen. Hmm. Um, until there was one day I brought it up on a show and then you were like, oh, no, let's go in. We're diving into this. And I was like, yeah. okay, we can do this. So, yeah. Um, I was so, sure you're going to say the burbs for some reason, but I, I like the burbs. The burbs definitely. I was also debating Rear Window because it's my favorite film to argue with you about. Oh, Vertigo. Uh, sorry, right. Vertigo. Yeah. Sorry, Vertigo. No, that's like it's my favorite film to argue with you yeah. about. So I was debating Vertigo, but yeah, I ended up okay. going. 
All right. All right. I think that's a pretty good portrait of me, except now everyone's going to be like, he only likes art house from Europe. Um, but don't worry. You'll hear me talk about lots of crazy. I could things. say brain dead, but that's uh, coming up in a little yeah, bit. No, you got to hold that one back. Uh, all right. Uh, these were, I literally did this like off the top. I kind of closed my eyes and I said, all right, first off, I have to throw a Miss 45 because I need to throw some crazy nun, uh, traumatic <laughs> nun thriller, able for a gritty New York from your time in New York. That, like, there's just a lot about this movie that I, makes me think of you for some reason. Um, my, my weird crush on Zoe Lund. Yeah, why not? Yeah. You know? And I bought you a giant ass French poster that you're going to hang yeah. in your house one day. Um, number two is just, <laughs> just it has to be Slugs. Uh, it was going to be fixed for <laughs> Slugs, and I'm going with Slugs uh, by the director of Pieces. <laughs> Uh, Slugs is actually a really entertaining film. I didn't think it possibly <laughs> to be uh, entertaining, but it's actually pretty good. Um, but for some reason, I think of you and insects. I think most people who know you uh, think of insect horror and you. Mm-hmm. It's so true. I've long said that many people, you know, are get, die having said, I did this or I did, created this charity. I've convinced thousands of people to see the movie Slugs. That was yeah. like my Lord's work. Uh, the last one, last spot is hard. I have to go with my gut. There's a deep cut that goes with it, but it has to be Hellraiser 3. Uh, because <laughs> when I think of you, I don't think anyone else will go with Hellraiser 3, but I know you would. So I totally would. My deep cut was going to be Psychomania, which is a, a favorite of that's yours. But, great one. Yeah. but Hellraiser 3 is something I, when I think, I think that's the key. Once you get to know people, it's always amusing because when the movie comes on or plays or you pass a t-shirt, you can't not think of the person. Yeah. And you I know? do have to say, I I love Psychomania, but I think my personality is more Hellraiser 3. I think your personality is definitely <laughs> Hellraiser 3, as we're going to find out. I don't know if that's out. a good thing, but it's true. I don't know if it's a good thing, but we're going to find out. <laughs> Either way, it's fun. Um, but so those, that gives you a little uh, sense of our some of our taste. Um, at the top of our show, the one thing that will probably be similar to a lot of the other shows we've done in the past is we'll always kind of jump in with what we've been watching. Yeah, like on, recent uh, stuff that we've been checking out and... Yeah. And uh, yeah, so in this case, I do want to do one quick plug up top, which is we were also just on. It it fits with what we've been watching, but we both have watched a lot of Fulci um, this October because we were on a draft for another podcast called Screen Drafts, where we pod uh, we had to draft the best seven. Lucio Fulci film. So if you want to go deep on Fulci, which we did, uh, we're not going to recount it here. You can mm-hmm. go over there uh, and have, it's a really, it was really fun and really challenging. And his work is, is fantastic to watch in October. I think it's we, tone well. Yeah. And we watched a lot of Fulci deep cuts for this. Like some of the ones that I had not seen before. And we rewatched like Devil's Honey and Murder Rock because they're just yeah. fun as well. That's another film you could think of both of us if somebody <laughs> is Devil's Honey. Devil's Honey. I mean, not us together with the saxophone. <laughs> not exactly. That would be a little too on the nose. I don't want people to think of me with devil's honey i kind of do it's pretty cool no <laughs> we'll think of murder rockets uh all right quick segue <laughs> uh okay well, this is october this this new show is launching in october and for me obviously we've been watching a lot of films narrowing it down to a couple things uh i wanted to find something that would kick off the season for me and i hadn't seen it m- maybe since theaters maybe i've seen it once since the theaters but I, I jumped in with sleepy hollow uh mm-hmm. by tim burden and it's just such a magnificent movie to start this period like it's just it's a it's you know the best possible version of bava mixed with a hammer uh, mm-hmm. done through tim burden's wild lens it's peak burden he's still really in command of his craft it's scary funny and the mystery is also good um it I really- has it, it's got kind of a comedic gore element which we're going to be yeah. talking about later in the show the theme of the show is splat stick yeah um and we'll be getting into the history of that as well but 
it's Tim Burton style mixed with this horror element. And especially so some of those beheadings where, you know, yeah. he, he beheads somebody, the head rolls right up to you into the camera with this like, yeah. you know, grimace on its face. But it, it's really kind of, I got to say, it's, it's, it's a little magical. I, I was, it, it's rare. Some of these movies, we, we're often on the hunt. We're always talking about it. Like it's usually new, new viewings and deep cuts that um, kind of get us going. But sometimes when you go back to a movie like this, that's just so well made. It's a, it's a great reminder of what made mm-hmm. you fall in love with horror in the first place in a way. Um, because it's just, it's doing all the details. The cinematography is gorgeous. Uh, it's really a special movie. And, and so if you're somebody like me who doesn't always you know, revisit these movies, this is one I think is great for the season. That's a perfect film for it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I will go to um, a TV show that is on right now that I must admit I have not gotten to watch all of, but I watched half of, so I'm excited to talk about it. And that is Monsterland, which is currently on Hulu, um, which I started watching a couple of nights ago because somebody tweeted at me, hey, there's a mermaid episode. And when not doing Bugs and Hellraiser 3, I'm really into my aquatic horror And so I was like, okay, well, I have to check this out, especially when I found out that the mermaid episode was done by Nick Pesh, who Mm. I absolutely love. I was like, okay, now I'm definitely. And um, so, yeah, this, they're all different cities and they all kind of have, I'll call it a black mirror feel to it, where it's all kind of like the sins of this person kind of come back to haunt them. It feels kind of like tragically ironic comeuppance type style that we see in a lot of black mirror episodes. Um, I'll also compare it to black mirror in the fact that this is not a binge watchy, especially the first, the first uh, episode. Are they an hour? They're an hour. And so this is one that I, I, when I sat down, I was like, Oh, I can get three in tonight. And I watched one and was like, well, I'm, I'm very sober and need to go watch, you know, something else now more comedic. Um, And so they are a little intense. At least some of them are, some of them are a little bit lighter, but they all kind of have that, this, this black mirror, like hopelessness feel to them. Um, But that said, the ones that I've watched have been really good. The two that um, I've watched so far that definitely stood out to me was um, the Texas one, because there are all these different cities, um, which is the Nick Pesh. And then there was also one in New Orleans that I really liked. Um, one of the episodes is by um, Babak and Vari, who did um, Under the Shadow and the Wounds, both of which we loved. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot here. And a lot of the directors of this, I'm not familiar with um, their work. It's a lot of international filmmakers. So I'm excited to keep going with it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I, I've just seen the poster for that. I hadn't checked it out. I, I'll, I'll lead with another new one and it's kind of a nice tag so my first film sleepy hollow my second film is the new film wolf of snow hollow uh directed by jim cummings who um is just the most awesome guy let me just say up front uh this is a guy who i doesn't even know me and i invited him to come talk to my film class at the height of his press stuff and he showed up for no reason wow. no, I, and i said to my students just so you understand he doesn't need to be here <laughs> you know it's different when somebody knows me but jim and he did and it was it was really terrific i loved this film i've been watching a lot of you know pretty serious horror or horror, a lot of indie horror that has a certain one note quality and then something mm. cool happens this movie is funny the, it has a character uh, he plays he, jim's also the star but he he made the sundance winning uh, thunder road short and thunder road feature and so he's not a horror name he's a name in indie film um and uh, this film is about a uh, kind of small ski resort where something that's probably a werewolf uh, is hacking apart woman, uh, taking vital organs from them, and it's and is scaring everyone senseless in the town. But everyone in the town is their first instinct is it must be a werewolf. Unlike a lot of horror movies, 
<laughs> and Jim's character, who's really funny, is this cop whose dad is kind of the sheriff who is probably uh, probably a little too old to be sheriff now and probably needs to be retired. And Jim, every time somebody goes, it's not a werewolf, it's a man, and I'm going to catch him. And there's a great scene where he goes, it's a man, I'm going to catch him, I'm going to kill him, uh, I'm going to arrest him. <laughs> like that, it's a really great <laughs> like, uh, kind of cop moment. But uh, his dad, this is one of the really fun parts, his dad is played by Robert Forster in his last screen role. So, oh, wow. so, and, and for me, it, when I, when this movie ended, all I could think of is this is the best movie ever made outside of Jackie Brown to pair with, <laughs> with alligator because it's basically the same thing. <laughs> They're trying to catch, you know, a, a werewolf or he's a cop trying to catch an alligator. You could watch these two movies together. It'd be perfection. But uh, this film is genuinely funny and also genuinely scary and like has moments where you're like, Oh shit. Like t- towards the end, a little bit of a Fincher vibe at the end, a Zodiac kind of vibe, which I thought was really surprising. It has a lot of different tones. And so I think some people won't have heard of this, I think because it's an indie and you know relatively low budget but you'll get a lot of bang for your buck with this one so that's wolf of snow hollow trust me on this one nice um so the next one that i will mention is one that i know elric and i um watch together as part of fantasia and that's possessor Mm -hmm. um and i definitely wanted to give this one some accolades um so that her fans can keep this on their radar and go ahead and add it to your watch list film Um, of the year yeah, this for me film of the year. That's why I wanted to give this like a strong mention, even yeah. though I did watch this a couple of weeks ago. It still is with me, and I definitely this one's going to be in my top five for the year, hands down. This is Brandon Cronenberg. It's David Cronenberg's son. Um, but honestly, it makes me question like what their um, you know Canadian Thanksgiving Online. dinners are like um, because it is literally it feels just like a continuation it's like a a a more kind of contemporary version um where it still is dealing with this intense body horror this intense violence this intense kind of quest for technology and understanding what it is it's just like continued tones but taking horror into sci-fi which is pretty rare outside of them But somehow it feels like a companion piece, but it feels so stylistically different. Like it does not feel like a Cronenberg film as we know it. So I don't want to put it in that. Tonally, it's there, but like it's a completely different thing. I think this is a double feature where you go to The Brood and you go, wow, this is about David Cronenberg's divorce. Those kids must have been fucked up. And then you watch Possessor and go, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Proof in the pudding. My my thing with Possessor, this is by far one of the most violent films I've yeah, seen in years. And I watch a lot of violent shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, it's all about a hitman, hit woman, who does not use guns um, in any capacity. And instead, there's like a fire poker. And I'm just going to rip your jaw out. And oh, it's intense. And, and she's not meant it. to be doing that. Mm-hmm. That's the interesting no. thing. So she's choosing to do that. Yeah, it's- so there is there is a lot going on in this. Um, the whole setup is that it is kind of this futuristic technology where you can literally go inside someone's brain, take over their psyche and their body, execute somebody who they are near, and then go back and step out of it. Um, and so it that's the whole kind of setup of it. And this woman who is this like psychic hit woman. Played by and Andrea Riseborough, who's Mandy from Mandy. Mandy. Yes. Yeah. And she's amazing in this. But yeah, this one um, is one that I am still thinking about. And it's been weeks. Yeah. And yeah. No, it, this one lingers and, and not getting to see it theatrical. This is one of the true bummers of this pandemic of 2020 was not seeing Possessor on a screen pulsating oh, yeah. like it should be. Like, you know, watching 
watching a screener that's just not the same. I watched it on my computer screen. Yeah. And usually I'm okay with that. Like I've gotten accustomed to it and it's just how I watch it now. But then every so often there's one where I'm like, oh, this would have exploded literally. Oh, yeah. um, and the sound and the music and just the sound design of everything because it is so kind of um, hypnotic, psychotronic. It, yeah. There's, yeah, there's that's, so that's very true. On. Yeah, take a risk on this one if you haven't heard much. I mean, we're in a weird year, which is a good reason to be doing shows like this. You get to point people back to things that mattered, and especially right now that may have just gotten missed because I am not receiving information the way I used to. Nope. And, and I'm not going to movie theaters and seeing trailers to movies. So it's like a random, hey, what came on VOD? Oh, wow, you'll find something buried under 200 movies. That was something you would have looked forward to seeing on a screen. So, you know, hopefully we'll point people. I didn't know Antebellum came out. I haven't watched oh, it yet, but. I had no idea that even came. No, out. I mean that was meant to be a big release. So I mean, and I look for this shit. So yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 key, and I think that's I want that to always be a big part of the show, and also pointing people to the more indie stuff that mm-hmm. uh, can otherwise get lost after festivals. You know, festivals yeah. are great places, but festivals, uh, which we'll get to in a second, are also suffering and having to reinvent. Uh, I have one more before we get to that. I'm sw- totally, so do I. Talking about big screen and the importance of seeing a movie on the big screen in the perfect situation. I don't think it would matter how you saw this thing because I don't know what the hell. It is and that is halloween 6 the curse of michael myers the producer's <laughs> cut and i have not seen this movie in 20 years and i haven't either there is a reason i didn't go back to it but holy cow okay the first note i wrote is wtf is this movie and why does it want to be an amityville film because it's he literally, more, he literally it, did write that on our yes. show notes. It just says WTF is this movie. I mean, no, but it, yes, is this movie? That's my first cry. <laughs> is this a movie? Um, is this a Halloween movie? Is another no? But I mean, it really feels more in line with what Am- Amityville sequels are like, which is just utterly bonkers, and they change the direction of a franchise like in a split second. Halloween doesn't normally do that. Uh, obviously, part three aside, but this movie. I'm not even going to try to decode it. All I'm going to say is it's directed by a guy, uh, Joe Chappelle, and he will always get a pass because he's the guy who made Ben Affleck the Bomb and Phantoms. So that's already <laughs> a pass. So he's good. He's safe from my wrath. Oh. Um, this, I guess, is a producer's cut to try to make more sense of the story. But uh, what I had forgotten, I remember Cult of Thorn and hearing all this stuff. But basically, it reduces Michael Myers to being someone who, because of astrology and where, the alignment of stars, has mm-hmm. been killing people for a cult of druids. Yep. Like they went back to druids after Halloween 3. They thought that was like made, you know. <laughs> Let's double down on the druids in this oh one stonehenge God. didn't come back but yeah that's what i always remember is the cult of thorn like it takes a completely different direction and it takes away his agency oh i tell um, me it takes yeah. away it's worse than a prequel that explains the way it, it's he's also he feels in it he's never scary because he always feels like a puppet he's even yeah. the way he moves it feels like oh well if he's being controlled why is this and it's got i mean it's you still get uh, retired donald presence it's mind controlled myers you get called a thorn but the weirdest thing is the intense paul rudd is so weird <laughs> to see this is like what a paul rudd's first writing it's so intense and i'm not used to him being intense and horny uh you know watching his neighbor and uh it's a weird movie i, I will say this i had and so i can't i'm not smart enough to be able to uh, or dumb enough whichever <laughs> to break down the differences between this and the uh, other version of halloween six you can go to Brian Collins's excellent article uh, online. Uh, as I, I said, saw that and I started reading it and I was like, I don't even have enough background uh, to remember this. Uh, so. My dumbed down version, just call it Rosemary's Halloween. Cause that's kind of where it goes. You can kind of use that for your imagination. Uh, I did have fun watching it um, because you know, I'll watch any Halloween movie in the season just to kind of get back mm-hmm. in the spirit. But I've got to say, this is one of the weirder sequels I've ever seen. Like it just so much of it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I know some, but somebody loves it. And that's one thing we always say. Somebody I might think loves that. it, 
somebody has the poster above their bed. So, so for somebody, this is their Hellraiser three, um, so, which I will die on that hill. Um, yeah, throwing CDs at people. Um, so the next one that I will um, talk about, I'll, I'll talk about briefly. Um, but this one kind of snuck up on me, and I, I honestly was not expecting to like it as much as I did. And this is Curse of Audrey Earnshaw. Mm, um, this is a new. It's a Canadian film. Epic, Epic is putting it out. And um, it's directed by Thomas uh, Robert Lee, who I, he has one other film that I had not seen, um, but it's a very small film. Um, and the whole setup is that it is set back in like colonial times. It's very kind of non-distinct colonial-ish times. Um, and it, it feels kind of like this, they're still kind of believing in witchcraft and everything. So there's this kind of air of mysticism from the start. And there is, it's a very small town. Um, you get the idea that they, they have this very strict religious sect, but this one woman on the outskirts of town doesn't really adhere to that. She's kind of like the outsider of it. And all of a sudden this plague comes out and starts taking down the entire town. And it's also taking down their crops and people start losing children and all the crops are dying and everybody's suffering except for this one woman on the outskirts of town. And um, everybody in town starts kind of pointing fingers at her. Now, this is not a twist because you find it out immediately. She actually has a daughter that she has kept concealed from the town for years because it's out of wedlock. And she thinks that they're going to kind of be like accusatory of, you know, they think she's a witch already. And then she has this like mysterious daughter. Um, and so then it, it kind of goes from there of them accusing her of being a witch of thinking that she's like bewitching the town. And then when they find out that she actually has a daughter, it goes even further. Mm. And um, I, this one kept me captivated. It's real slow burn. It's real small. I mean, you're looking at like 10 townsfolk and then woman with daughter. Um, but there was something really fascinating about this one. It's a very female horror story. I will say, because it's the majority of it is within this mother and her daughter. Um, and so it is a really kind of female heavy perspective, but yeah, this one I, I was really into. It was, it was a nice watch for me. Really I, nice historical. Surprised it didn't come up on our uh, puberty special that we did. I had not watched it yet uh, <laughs> or else it would have. That's a perfect segue though. Uh, we did do a special uh, on puberty uh, films uh, for the Salem horror film festival, Yes, which is available on their site. And eventually we will be dropping that as a bonus at some point. Um, but but we were talking about film festivals and we'll be brief with these because I know, I know for people it's nice to get pointed to new films, but you also don't want to spoil them and film festivals. Some of these movies might, because the film festivals are, are already over. Some of them might not come out for a few months, but yeah. we wanted to highlight to give them some love because, uh, you know, film festivals are in a very tricky place. Mm. Uh, just like movie theaters are, you know, obviously an impossible situation right now. Film festivals are being, some of them are being brilliant and they're reinventing what they do and the feeling, trying to create a sense of community online and so we've popped into a couple. Um, I know I've I've highlighted uh, just really briefly three that I three films highlights and three festivals to mention uh, that yeah. in the last few weeks. Yeah, I did Fantasia back in August, which was I, I had a blast doing. Um, and I do have to say that there was something nice about the fact that I did not have to pick up my life and go to Canada for a week to do it. Um, I would do that again because you were missing the communal activity, but there was still something nice about, okay, I'm in my pajamas. I don't have to find a place to stash my children for a week. Um, and, and, you know, I can just watch these from my home. 
Um, but yeah, you are missing a lot of the communal activities. I think they're with. going like what they're doing to to get over that. They're just they're loading it with stuff. Like, and I think again, their access to getting mm-hmm. people who might not have made the trip, celebrities, panels, retrospectives. Uh, the first one I was going to highlight is uh, good friends of ours last year. At this exact time, I would have been in Salem uh, recording a show, uh, you know, and Kevin does such a great job with that festival, the Salem Horror Film Festival. And um, yeah, we love you. Yeah, we, we yeah. did a live show together. And for uh, Pure Cinema, the other podcast I do with Brian Sauer, we did a special on Joe Dante, the movies that made Joe Dante for that. And there was really fun. But I saw a, um, a, a film that actually won the festival, uh, an indie film called The Strings, uh, directed by Ryan Glover. And it's it's set in a, some some part of Canada, like a kind of remote, uh, mountainous, kind of snowy uh, Canada. And it's this musician, and she's like a modern kind of, she you know, uses synths and keyboards and makes her own music and sings. Her name's Tegan Johnson, and she's obviously a real musician. You can just tell. Uh, and she moves there to kind of start recording uh, her next album to kind of live remotely. And she then is doing a photo shoot with this girl, and there's some feelings between you know like they're obviously vibing together but the girl's telling her these kind of creepy stories of the place where they're taking the photos in some you know just some place in the, some murder that had happened and mm-hmm. then basically it's a very minimal story once she's in her house you start getting the sense that this dark thing has followed her back there and it's a really slow and simple but it's got some really creepy moments and images and the music is kind of like the through line as much as i'd say even maybe more than her performance the music she plays is almost has its own arc to the character because maybe that's mm-hmm. how she expresses herself I, it reminded me a little of the the film from a couple years ago called sweet sweet lonely girl which mm-hmm. i liked and it has yeah. a similar vibe so i think some people who are into like indie horror will really dig the vibe of this one it's uh, i recommend it it's good Nice. Um, so I'll do all of mine together because they're all from um, Brooklyn Film Festival, which was part of Nightstream. Sure. Um, so yeah, you've got Beyond Fest. So go ahead and dig in on that one. Plus, I've seen yeah, this yeah, one. Yeah, that's right. We can both. So Beyond Fest, I've never missed a Beyond Fest. Beyond Fest happens in LA. It's one of uh, my favorite times of the year. And they just they always just bring it with guests and just mm-hmm. wild screenings. Uh, great programmers. Um, this year, it was hard because we all knew it wouldn't happen normally. And it didn't. But they went to the drive-in. And uh, they went to Mission Tiki here kind of outside of LA and they put it on as drive-ins and some great screenings. Uh, I went and saw probably one that least suits the drive-in. Um, yeah. You know, the, the Brian Bertino makes some of the darkest movies of our la- of the last decade. And they're quiet. They're and they're very they're, quiet and It's all about letting the scenes breathe. Yes, and they're very <laughs> so, adult. And, and yeah. you know, I, I, with this movie, I think he's really cemented his place as things in the same way Mike Flanagan's doing it on a bigger level. Uh, Bertino's making these smaller, quieter adult horror films that mm-hmm. now somebody, now it's ready for somebody with about four films now. I think somebody could write the most amazing book or essay on his vision of America and family yeah. and, and, you know, relationships. But, um, this one's on a rural, fa- rural farm and, um, and uh, the a man is slowly dying. Uh, his, his wife doesn't want their kids to return home. The kids return home, the two, the two adult kids, you know, obviously cause their father's dying and the mother's acting a little weird. Like we don't really know why she didn't want them to return. And then yeah. you start to reveal something, something really demonic and dark is basically trying to get the soul of their dying father and to get, get it. It's going through uh, the people in his life, and it's and the cool thing is that part's never really explained the why or what is the or difference. how it found no. him, or what it is. It's just it's creepy. Just, no, it's, it's just dark of, and creepy. Yeah. yeah. 
and it's got yeah. some great people in it like like xander berkeley's in this thing most of you remember him from Candyman as the kind of shitty husband uh character but he is unrecognizable he's got like a white beard and he's like this preacher character and there is a scene with him in the darkness that really creepy oh so creepy it's like the creepiest thing in the film like it's just like what yeah. is yeah it's yeah i love that kind of tone but yeah no it's uh, you saw this one at fantasia fantasia as part of the fantasia festival and this was definitely one of my favorites of the festival i love this one yeah it is it's not a you know a crazy film there's not going to be things flying at you it does not move yeah. fast it does not feel compelled to move fast and the scares are kind of big like there mm-hmm. it, we talk about subtle often these in, in indie where like nothing happens and then it happens there's actually stuff happening all the way through this so yeah this is not are happening yeah this is definitely not an a24 film where i'm like there's an hour of nothing and then 10 minutes of explosions um this one it, it's constant it's kind of constantly dropping these little breadcrumbs of scares um and then it gets big at the end and because of the way i saw it like it's still fun to see it on the drive but it made me instantly go I, i'll i'll watch this one again when it comes out again because i think it yeah. needs, and, and for people who don't know he also produced so besides the films he directed he also produced one of my favorite films the last 10 years which is black coat's daughter mm-hmm. uh so you know and that fits in that same canon that same style of horror film um, well, I'll dig in with some yeah. of the stuff that I watched on Nightstream because um, I don't know what you watched on Nightstream, so I'm excited. I watched a couple, but I'm only going to mention one to let you mention this. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about three that I watched briefly. Um, so the first one that I watched was Honeydew, um, which I loved the setup for this. I won't say where it goes because it does have this kind of drastic um, – twist midway through um but the setup is that this girl and her husband or the fiance i assume that they were together um are are at this uh very rural town um that specializes in wheat that's it's this farming community and she is a grad student who's researching um they call it something different in the movie but it's essentially like ergo poisoning it's a fungus that grows on the wheat and then you feed it to cattle and it actually like makes the cattle mad and then if people need to eat it it can continue on and it causes insanity and hallucinations and all of this crazy stuff so it's kind of like mixed Sing, mad cow disease, kuru, and um, ergo poisoning. Hmm. Um, and they give it a name in the movie, but it's it's all of, you know, ergo poisoning is what they now think happened in the Salem witch trials where hmm. their rye was infected with this fungus and it caused everybody to go nuts and bleed from their noses and see stuff. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's the setup is they're there researching this and their car breaks down and they have to stay with this old woman. They end up um, at this house run by this very old woman who is taking care of her adult mentally challenged son. And really quickly, you kind of realize that it's almost kind of Hansel and Gretel-y, um, where it's these two people who are at this house and these constant creepy things going on with this old woman, but never enough for them to be like, let's get the hell out of here. And I'm not going to talk about where it goes because it definitely goes to a place I was not expecting. Um, But I liked this one. It's real small. This one's being put out by Yellow Veil. And um, and across the board, like they just always have really yeah, tight. It's always yeah. interesting stuff yeah, from Yellow. Yeah. So this one, it's it's got some fascinating notes to it. Um, the next one I'll talk about is from Spain, and this is 32 Malasana um, Street. This is a very traditional ghost story um, for the most part. And I will say, I did not like the ending of this. This has a mm. twist at the end that I just, it, it lost me at that mm. point. Um, but for 75% of the movie, I was with it. The whole concept is this family, um, has, we don't understand really exactly what has gone on, but they 
were living in a rural village in Spain and something happened and they ended up selling the farm and they moved to the middle of Madrid. So this is an urban horror film and they get jobs and they have this beautiful apartment that they were able to get for super cheap and they don't know why. And they move in and all of a sudden the hauntings start. And you don't really know what's going on until the third act, which is where it lost me um, when it got to the explanation part. But it did have some great scares. It did have the, I, I actually gasped several times during this. So um, yeah, I, I have problems fully recommending it because of where it goes, but it did have some really, really well orchestrated. I believe that one might be coming to shutter pretty soon. Mm-hmm. I think it is. It was, it was listed as a shutter one. Um, and then the other one that I'll talk about, I not sure where this one is landing. Actually, I don't want to speak out of school on it. Um, but this is detention. And this one was like crazy educational for me. This is a Taiwanese film and it focuses on this historical moment. I I can't even call it a moment. It lasted for like 30 years in Taiwan, um, called the white terror. And it was where they, um, much like we had the red scare in America in the 1950s, where, you know, you were, if you were a communist or suspected of, you know, talking to communists and things like that, you could be arrested. It was that same thing, but they would put you to death. Mm -hmm. If you were in any way thought to be connected with a communist, reading communist literature, spreading communist lore, you could actually be put to death. So it was very much under martial law. And the whole film is set at a school during this time period. And um, so you get from the very start of it, this kind of feeling of like impending doom of everybody's watching everyone else. There's this crazy paranoia. Um, One of the girls falls asleep at school one day and the next morning, or it's actually kind of middle of the night, she wakes up and everyone is gone except for one other boy. And they can't find, everyone's gone in the school, everyone's gone in the town, and then things start getting really trippy. Like what they find is they're walking around the school and stuff like that. Um, And so I learned a lot about the history of that moment, that 30 years of of big history. And it's something that we we just don't hear about over here, sadly. Um, Seems to be a bit of a trend too with some foreign horror in the last couple of years to mix uh, political allegory history with a horror film as a good way to kind of deliver it to people. Yeah, there was the La La Ronia one that I was talking about um, that I I literally knew none of that history before Um, I had seen it. And so I I like it because I am getting this historical bend with it. This one also has some really tight scares to it. This was apparently um, a really high grossing film Um, in the region. And so I'm excited to see how it does over here. It definitely packs a good horror punch and gets real trippy. And that was detention. So these are on something called Nightstream, which is Mm -hmm. a basically was like a conglomeration of uh, Boston Underground, Brooklyn, the Overlook. Overlook. And there Um, may have been another one in there. Yeah, which is, and you know, super creative of them to to kind of bound together to put on something to get the best of the best of these films. Uh, I saw a couple, but the the one I wanted to highlight just really quickly is called The Night. Um, It was by uh, uh, Karish Ahari. It was a, I thought it was actually in Iran. Uh, or Iran, uh, as I was watching it, but it's about an Iranian couple living in the U.S., but there isn't everyone speaking, uh, you know, in Iran and, or is it Farsi? I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, they, so it's, so it kind of throws you, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, it's about a couple uh, and their baby and they are having like a very long night and having a fight and the, the long drive home and they decide to just check into a hotel instead. And when they check into this hotel, 
uh, basically they are now in a ty- kind of a loop of an endless night where really kind of menacing and strange and haunting things start happening to them individually and they will not be released until they come to uh, say honestly what they've been through and both of them have oh, done wow. have hidden things from the other in their lives which have led them to this moment so it's quite adult it's very twilight zoney uh, it's very much about the character arcs and the performances really really good performances um it was just interesting especially afterwards reading about it that it was because i was as watching as like oh is this set in iran but they're in like an american hotel but no it's set in like philadelphia or somewhere but wow. they happen to be. and so it really it just felt original in that sense so look out for that one i think i think that one will probably get a, a decent release release eventually. And um, that is called The Night. And we should have warned people at the top that um, it's best to listen to um, us with a pad of paper or a letterbox so you can uh, constantly be adding titles to your... Right. The, the two biggest things I've ever heard about myself as a podcaster is, please, can you repeat the title after you talk about it? Number one. And number two, I can't listen to you at one and a half speeds because you talk too fast. So, hey, tough shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's just how it is. But um, speaking of uh, laughing, crying, and covering yourself and gore (laughs) (laughs) let's head into some splat stick so i am super excited to invite on our guest for this next segment we're going to be talking about the history of splat stick and he has a splat stick uh, film which is coming your way this week and um brian spindell welcome to the show guys thank you so much for having me this is so cool so Tell us, you've got Mortuary Collection coming out, um, Anthology. This felt massive. Um, A lot of it because of the gore. Was all of the gore practical? The gore was almost entirely practical, yeah. Oh, dear God. That was a, yeah, it was a big deal. Um, uh, I mean, by big deal, I mean it was incredibly uh, hard to pull off. Um, We actually had sort of a a really lucky lucky thing. So this, this is an anthology movie. Uh, it's four stories with sort of this big wraparound. And um, I wrote it as an anthology film first and foremost. And then uh, I made a uh, one of the segments as sort of a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called The Babysitter Murders. We made that, I think, in 2015. And um, <clears throat> at the time when I made the film, uh, you know, I, I thought it was going to be this sort of big showpiece that was going to sort of light the world on fire and get this movie made. And uh, as it turns out uh, at a studio level, you really can't get these kind of things going Becca, as you know. And so original IPs are hard, very hard, very hard. Um, And so we went to, we went to work making this independently and we didn't have a lot of money. Um, And I was sort of talking to some really cool uh, sort of special effects guys that I knew that had worked with on shorts and stuff and trying to figure out how the hell I was going to piece together this sort of massive thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I just had this moment. I was like, I'm just going to take a couple of wild swings and just reach out to my favorite practical effects companies in the world and just see. Because uh, as you guys know, as a director, one of your main jobs is writing impassioned emails. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down Please, and I written passion begging emails. Yeah. It's it's a fine line, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, if you, you want it to not sound like you're begging, but at the end, if they don't work with you, you want them to feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I reached out to these uh, three different companies in town in Los Angeles uh, and two of them got back to me uh, and one was very kind, but they just didn't have the time in their schedule. And the other was studio ADI who are, um, if you guys don't, don't know them or aren't familiar with them, they are they won an Academy Award for Death Becomes Her. They did Tremors. Mm-hmm. They did Starship Troopers. 
uh, Alien vs. Predator, everything. Have you been to their office? They have the brain bug from Starship Troopers I know. hanging on their fucking wall. It's amazing. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> we shot the tentacle sequence of this movie right underneath that brain bug. It was <gasps> oh, the coolest. Oh, it was wow. the coolest. Um, and so I had this... Uh, I had this really interesting meeting where, so we had the short, I'm, I'm, I'm making this way longer than it needs to be, huh. but we had this short and we sent it to them and they loved it and they loved mm-hmm. the feature. And I went to this like sort of fancy like boardroom they have, um, which is almost like a trick because they have this like fancy boardroom at the front, but then in the back, it's like a giant like playground. So you kind of have to like make it through the chambers to get into the inner sanctum. Talking monkeys. This, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the talking monkeys. <laughs> and, uh, and so I had this meeting with them and they were like, how much money do you have? And I told them and they like got really sad and then they thought about <laughs> it, looked at each other for a long moment. And they're like, let's fucking do this. And so uh, they came on board and they were committed and dedicated. And they're like, we're, we'll build everything we can and everything we can't build. will repurpose sort of other effects that we have in the, mm-hmm. in the ha- warehouse that we've used in other things. So there's, there are elements from tremors in this movie, which is like a little dream come true, I think. Um, and so, yeah, so, so we were, were sort of steadfast committed to practical effects through and through. And there was sort of one major gag in each segment. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gave us a little bit of flexibility. And it was like, okay, we're doing this segment now. We have one gag. Let's do the best we can with this. So they built those all from custom and from scratch and then sort of repurposed other things. And, uh, and the tricky thing that I think people don't understand about practical effects who haven't really done them is they just crush your day. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Killers. It slows everything down. Um, and I, I have to say that the, that is a great tip that I give to young filmmakers or those who are just kind of like, how do I get my first horror film off the ground is ask your effects people if they have anything ready made. Um, because there's elements in all the creatures. Um, my first anthology that came from game of Thrones and American horror story so hotel, cool. just cause I went to people and was like, what do you have already built that we can just repaint? And yeah. so, and it, and it, you get it cheaper and it works so well. Um, but yeah, practical effects, that's your day. One thing explodes, you're done. It is your day. And, and the, the best thing is that the people who are doing these practical effects are just the biggest nerds, just like us. Mm-hmm. And they really do love it. And if you can give them the room to play, they'll sort of do amazing things. But you, re- you really understand when you get there on the day and you have to do some sort of big gag and you've scheduled like 20 minutes for it, that it's just not going to happen. And you kind of understand when you see movies, why there are some movies that have, you know, really great story and really great acting, but the effects are kind of meh or they cut away. Mm-hmm. And then other movies that are just effects because they don't have time to sort of do anything with the, char- the characters and the story are just kind of ancillary. Um, so the, I think finding the balance between these, those two was like such a huge learning experience with this film. Did you shoot consecutively? Cause one of the nice benefits of the anthology is that you can take time off in between segments or you don't, it doesn't have to be like a constant thing or did you guys shoot consecutive? We, so the plan was that we were going to shoot consecutive. uh, But when we got the money to make the movie, we met with uh, four different um, line producers Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you know, their job is to sort of take the money and and, and sort of show you how it's going to be budgeted. And basically all four of them said, there's no fucking way you can make this movie for any less than, or any more in less than four times this budget. They basically said they, they wouldn't even, we were going to pay them and they were like, nah, that's okay. We're good. <laughs> um, and so we had this like little moment of crisis where it's like, we're sitting around. It was me, my producing partner, Justin Ross and Allison Friedman, uh, our other producer. And I was like, I've seen this before. Filmmakers get money. They don't act on it. They lose the money. They're back to square one. I think if we don't make this, start making this movie, we're going to, we're going to lose it. 
And so we did a little bit what you did. Yeah. We, we kind of condensed it a bit more, but we did sort of two segments here in LA, took a break. We went to Astoria, Oregon. We did the big wraparound with Montgomery and Sam, took a break. We did the bathroom sequence and some puppet action last. And then we even broke it down to even these smaller ancillary shoots where it was like, Oh, I'll paint the one of the walls in my bedroom, and I'll shoot a pickup here, or I'll 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 dress my friend's son up in sort of charred charred uh, monster outfits, and I'll, I'll shoot elements. And it really beca- it really came down to this these like tiny ridiculous like me and Justin, my producer, in the woods with a camera, just kind of piecing this thing together. As you know, over this like epic amount of time, which like it's amazing because it allows you to have this hyper focus and to really get every single like sort of add details in the background and, you know, have your artist friend paint something on the wall and do all these really sort of cool things that you kind of, you, you can't do in like a sort of traditional feature. Yeah. But man, the toll it takes on you physically, emotionally relationships, it really like wears you down. Like the making of a short film, which is what I'd done before is hard, but two years of making short films was just devastating. Like having I people, I had people that would come up and say things like, so you're still shooting that movie? And I'd be like, yeah, we're like 75% of the way through, but we would have to take downtime and kind of get more funds and find more investors yeah. and um, you know, recoup from the first two segments. So, that's, yeah. that's a thinly veiled insult, by <laughs> the way. Is, oh, you're still working on that still movie. still shooting yeah. that same film. Huh? No, that's it. And the whole time you're like, yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, will, I will say though, Ryan, yours is one of the most consistent uh, anthologies I've seen in mm-hmm. a long time, like in terms of the tone, in terms of the look in terms of the feel it's it feels big and and so it's i don't want people listening to this to think it's more you're obviously a filmmaker you're going to see it that way but it really doesn't ever feel like there's time in between it feels more like a, the fluidity of a feature that oh, it does. to have these really wild segments and i think that that often i think one of the big we've talked about anthologies a few years ago when you're you know back on killer pov when you were kind of starting all of this journey which is kind of cool that you're here for the first episode um but i guess to me, the big challenge then becomes the wraparound because that's the thing that will mm-hmm. you'll walk away. Did that feel like a feature? Or did it feel like a, what is that through line, that connective tissue? Um, right. Did you how how baked was that before you came up with the shorts, or did you know what each story would be so you could then reference them in the wrap? Which there's some great references in there. So yeah, I, I mean, I started uh, with sort of about six different short ideas that I've been sort of, I'd either sort of partially written or were just in my brain. So I started with that sort of loose structure and then um, the wraparound came secondary. But for me, that my biggest sort of gripe with a lot of anthology movies is that there isn't a really strong wraparound. And so most of my energy was put into how can I make the wraparound feel like a movie and that's really fucking hard actually mm. like it's, you don't really have much time and, and and there was like sort of this when i went into it i, I wanted to set it in a mortuary i wanted to i wanted to have a, a storyteller i wanted to have a, a version of the crypt keeper i wanted to hit the classics like i remember mm. when we started developing it my producers were like you know isn't that kind of cliche and i'm like no fuck that it's not cliche this is the shit i love the most like i want to pay i want to pay homage to that and i want to do it and i want to hit it straight on i want it to be horror i did and also we never got um and when we watched all those phantasm movies we never got one where we actually saw what he did as a job we never got to see him at work so this feels like we actually touched that this is what he did before he opened up a portal to alien worlds and it's clancy brown so if you're listening to this clancy brown you know major genre icon major film you know just actor from everything from shawshank yeah it's just the best well, I, I mean, and that was the first, the first thought was like, all right, I was like, I want to have uh, like a, an iconic storyteller character. Cool. That's easy. 
I mean, it's not easy. It's it, it's, but you know what that is. You know what it looks like. You know what he sounds like. You got to get a great actor to play him. Clancy is the best. Uh, but then from there, we was like, all right, well, how do we make him a, a character? Like, what's interesting about this guy? And I started thinking about the Crypt Keeper in Tales from the Crypt, and I was like, when you walk, when you sort of, you know, you go into the front door of the mansion, you go down into the crypt. He's he's putting on a show. He's telling a story. He's got all his best puns loaded up. He's ready to go. But like, what's the Crypt Keeper doing? When you're not there, like, what does he do in between? Is he sad? Is he lonely? Is he trapped? Does he like telling stories? And that kind of stuff started to sort of spiral into what could potentially be some actually character meat. And that's kind of where the whole sort of conceit for Montgomery and sort of where the movie ultimately goes came from. Sort of like, why why are you telling these stories? And and the so, way the girl is completely asking him to one up each story and make each so so it's also fun as a viewer because then you're watching the first one which was one of my favorites but then it's like well we can do a little better let's keep going and so you feel the filmmaker the playfulness of that for an anthology is great I think now did you know from writing it that you wanted it to be splastic that you did want this mix of hyper gore and comedy together. Yes, I, I, I knew that there was going to be a – I wanted to have that sort of elevated uh, fantastical feeling that I, I felt as a kid from Creepshow, that sort of playfulness, that sort of I, – I always remember Creepshow opened with a this like Saturday morning style animation and that always fooled me as a kid. So it was like it was like the best gateway horror in that it like legit felt like a kid's movie until suddenly I was like, you know, all the way in it and I, I it was too late. I had to watch it till the end. And so I think that was like sort of a conscious effort going in. Uh, and then I wanted to, it sort of has a timelessness and that was also an effort to sort of create some kind of separation from the, with the audience. So it's like, mm-hmm. we understand this is reality, but we don't quite understand when it is. So ideally an audience can sort of let go and just listen as if they're gathering around a, a sort of a campfire and listening to a story. Cause I remember that the stories we tell at the campfires, they don't have a time or a place. They just mm-hmm. are. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I wanted it to be heightened. I mean, and that's a, a, a tricky tightrope to walk, as everybody knows, sort of humor and horror and, and, and how to sort of balance it all. And, and some people, you have to do it knowing that some people are just not going to dig it. And you have to be mm-hmm. okay with that. Do you write it on the page knowing it's a joke or are you playing it serious and then leaving up the actors? How are you, what's that dance? Uh, so basically, I write it as ridiculous as possible. And then I have the actors play it as serious as possible. And there seems to be sort of a balance in between. That mad friction two. slips in. I love it. Yeah. And, and I, I bring the actors in ahead of time and I talk to them. And if something is like too out of left field, like we, I, I sort of like sit down with them. We go, we work the scenes. They sort of give me the ideas. We come up with new ideas and I rewrite the scenes for the actors if I have time. Uh, and that kind of also sort of starts to focus the movie. And, and then the movie kind of becomes something else. And it's kind of, it's fun embracing that. Like I'm a control freak. Uh, as you would probably be able to tell just by looking at the movie. But I uh, I also like, uh, I, I love it when somebody comes in with a strong idea that sort of, you know, one-ups what I was thinking. And so, you know, like uh, initially Montgomery's character, he was much more like the creep from, from mm-hmm. Creep Show. So he had this like, you know, he had the bald, the bald cap. He had uh, these sort of inset eyes, these giant jowls. He had the extended fingers. He was like a cartoon character. And the makeup that ADI did was so fucking awesome mm-hmm. and like the that side of myself that like super nerd side of myself was like oh i love this so much but then i was looking at him and i was like but i'm missing clancy and i'm like i, I i'm losing the, the reason that i hired this fucking guy in the first place mm. and it as i was watching him perform i was like and, and this isn't the movie like he's telling me the type of movie this needs to be and i can like roll with it 
or I can sort of try to fight it and create something that's awkward. And so I kind of love that process. And I think actors more than anybody sort of bring that sort of those surprises as you go. Well, let's talk a little bit about Splatstick, the history of it, and and some of your favorite films within it. Um, So Splatstick traditionally is defined as kind of this weird mix of horror and gore. And it's something that's hard. Splatstick, yes. I mean, sorry, slapstick. Slapstick. (laughs) Slapstick comedy (laughs) and gore. Because the slapstick comedy is different than just other kinds of comedy, right? Splatstick, well, slapstick traditionally would imply physical comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But when you look at splatstick, it is most people can identify it as soon as we say dead alive, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, but it is this kind of mix of over the top comedy and over the top gore somehow kind of coming in together. And sometimes and, it's like the comedy, the gore is leading to the joke. There might not even be a joke, yeah. but the gore keeps going past a point of ridiculousness that you start laughing <laughs> or you start exactly. going, Oh, Jesus, you know? So, like when I teach flat stick in classes i always point to trauma um because i'm like it's the concept of uh, this person's arm has been cut off and the amount of blood that is coming out is far beyond a normal and now it's spraying the entire room and now it's still going and things like that (laughs) um so i always put the origins of it at the grand geek knoll um which was like when they first started kind of doing the live stage shows uh for gore and and many of them the way that they actually use the grand geek Knoll, the shows themselves is they would do um three different types they would do one that was a drama one that was comedy and one that was like super super like melt your mind scary um so I, the fact that they had the comedy in there and and had these kind of like you know very intense comedic almost they were kind of lessons uh, like black mirror if they were funny. Um, And yeah. And then moving forward in time, I think we really start to see it in the 1960s with things like Herschel Gordon Lewis, um, who I don't even know if he was considering himself comedy at the time. Um, Probably not himself, but (laughs) but yeah, I mean, I don't think he thought that he was making like intense, you know, intense horror or anything like that. I think that he definitely saw the humor in it. Um, But yeah, he is definitely. And I think Bucket of Blood probably would kind of be like good origins of it. And I also always point to Monty Python salad days. Do you guys remember that sketch? Yeah. It's when they were doing um, the same. I think it was like they were doing a parody of a, like, I think it was a Peck and Paul movie. Um, but it's all of these people sitting around having a picnic and then somebody throws a tennis racket and it lands in somebody's head and then geysers of blood. Oh, man. And, like isn't, and, and the Black Knight is basically slapstick. Exactly. Fine. Actually, Monty Python really kind of excelled at this. Even if we look at something like um, a European Vacation, we have one of the Python bro- people in there um, when the, the bicycle guy gets his hand hurt and every time they take away the handkerchief it like spurts out in a geyser um, and he's like oh i'm fine i'm fine but yeah the black knight is a great example just a flesh wound uh, not a, just wait, a scratch <laughs> and that's like a predecessor to the sort of uh the um austin powers gag right where will ferrell falls down in the pit and he's like mm. i'm fine yeah exactly <laughs> no i'm yeah. fine um yeah but what when i was thinking about it this afternoon because i also as soon as i think about monty python salad days i start thinking about guar um, which is still that like the stage show, the Grand Gignol style stage show that is both splatstick and, and somehow funny. It's this over the top gore. Um, and so then what I started thinking about is where it kind of boils down for me that where I wanted you to talk a little bit about it, Ryan, was the aesthetic of it. 
Like if you think about splatstick movies and I think it's going to boom in the 1980s, like that's where we see this massive boom, like reanimator and things like that. Really splatstick became almost commonplace in a lot of the 1980s movies. But when I started thinking about them, they all kind of bring an aesthetic to gore that we did not necessarily have before the idea of it, not necessarily looking realistic, but instead of looking more like an art form. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I watched your movie and immediately went, Oh, splat stick. Mm. (laughs) Um, So was there like an art form, like a stylization when you were looking at the gore? Uh, Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. That's literally Splatstick. I keep wanting to say slapstick. Splatstick is Flat. was my 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 way into horror to begin with. I was as a kid. I uh, I had a really traumatic experience with Nightmare on Elm Street when I was five, and I just refused to watch horror for most of my young life. And it wasn't until and because I I think it's because and this is a, a thing that I see a lot today when I talk about horror and I meet different people and I tell them I make horror movies was that there are some people and they have one specific idea of what horror is. And I think mm-hmm. that idea is, is people getting hacked up in the woods, uh, young co-eds, scantily clad, getting chopped up by someone in a pig mask is, yep. is my, my go-to sort of description. And, and I was, uh, I didn't like that as a kid. I was like kind of a, a sensitive little geek and I was, uh, and I wanted to be a cartoonist and I drew all day and I spent a lot of time reading and I was like, I didn't want that sort of ideas swirling around my head. I don't know. I was, I was scared. And then um, I remember when I was 12, I, uh, I saw, uh, and we're going to talk about this later, but I saw uh, Evil Dead 2 on bootleg. My Some friends brought it over. They had like a, a VHS Evil Dead 2. I was like too old to like run and hide. So I had to like sort of, you know, buckle down and watch it. And, uh, and I remember just as the, I remember that day so clearly, I remember like, just seeing Sam Raimi bleeding through every frame, the sort of the, the audacity and the fun and, and the weirdness and just the artistry of what he was doing. Uh, and it was the first time ever. And, and, and I mean, this as a compliment, but like I could see the people behind that movie that, did, that yeah. wasn't just like, I could see the edges of the set. I mean, I don't know if I remember noticing the edges of the set on that first viewing, but I could feel it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I realized people make movies. And I remember literally one week later I saw uh Dead Alive, uh, or as Elric knows it, Brain Dead from Peter, Peter Jackson. Knowing it, there's no unknowing it <laughs> because Peter's from dead. New Zealand. You guys are the ones who had the problem with another movie. That's it's true. not our fault, <laughs> you know. We That's did true. our job, <laughs> <laughs> but I but I saw that movie, and I, I and honestly, like that movie is 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 perfection to me. That movie mm-hmm. took all of the sort of the creativity that was in Evil Dead, and it sort of it there it had a bigger budget. Uh, to get it done, but uh, there was like real storytelling and th- mm-hmm. like interesting thematic ideas g- running through it, and I just fell in love with it because it represented all of the things that I I liked as sort of a, a, I don't know if I'd call myself an artist at twelve, but I, I will for the sake of this podcast to sound uh, pretentious. Um, but it, it embodied all of those things that I really liked. I, I liked working with my hands. I liked making things. I liked photography. I liked all of that. Uh, and so that, you know, those segued into me watching everything, of course, because as a horror fan, you watch it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but to this day, when I think about the movies I want to make, uh, those are the movies that stand out. Those sort of auteur, uh, mise-en-scene uh, directors that sort of really sort of have a, a love of the craft as well as the storytelling. 
Yeah. Well, let's run through a couple of them because I think they kind of go hand in hand with your journey. So we, we'll we'll do it out of order because you already talked about Evil Dead 2. The thing about Evil Dead 2, and that was an entry point for me too, uh, is what we're talking about with the slapstick idea is that you the line doesn't have to actually have to be played funny at all. But the funniest thing I've ever seen in a movie, and I'm not kidding, any movie, right, is Bruce Campbell when he's cutting off his hand and he's saying – look who's or look who's laughing who's laughing now and he keeps saying it and he's saying it with such pathos and he looks terrified and disturbed it's the funniest thing i've ever seen like i die inside laughing every time i think about that scene even though it's not played for a joke the whole room is laughing and the deer is laughing and if you think about it that's fucking horrifying. It's but madness, that, yes, I, it's, it's pure madness, um, especially like the deer's eyes go white. But yet I remember just guffawing at that when I was in like middle school. Like it was just the funniest thing, but he is playing it perfectly straight. Oh, 100%. I mean, for me, it like, not to, not to sound cliche, but it's, it's the shot where the, uh, the, the Greta monster uh, is in the, under the trap door. He jumps on the door and the eyeball flies through the air and lands in her mouth. Yeah. Like that, like of the, the movie itself was transcendent, but that was the moment that turned me. I was just like, are you fucking kidding? I've never seen anything like that before. It was yeah. so awesome. And then the biggest influence we're talking about with Raimi, cause I see Raimi's influence on you, but then on Raimi, we see, we all know three stooges. There's no bigger influence. And that's the ultimate uh, slapstick comedy troupe. So, you know what I mean? So this through line's real clear. Uh, so evil dead too. We get, we get that one very clear. Uh, Brain dead. Uh, obviously meant a lot to you. I think one of the things about Brain Dead or Dead Alive, whatever you want, want to call it, is it keeps ratcheting it up. It gets bigger mm-hmm. and bigger and bigger. And it's, uh, I mean, for me, I, I, that was the first R, we call it R16. That meant you had to be 16 to go into the theater. It's also probably one of the new, first New Zealand films I saw in a theater. Uh, oh. I'd seen Bad Taste already on, on video and first time hated it because the voices threw me off. I was like, oh, they sound like us. That sounds weird. Like, you know, it's just, really? it just threw me That's off completely. So yeah, oh no, I, I, I don't think I'd probably seen a New Zealand film. I'd seen TV and stuff, but, um, because they also have very strong accents and, and um, bad taste, especially, but, but I was probably 13 or 14 sneaking into a 16. So it was like a big deal, but it had such an influence because it was so bonkers, but it had all these, um, stereotype Kiwi. You've been to New Zealand, right, Ryan? So, mm-hmm. you, you know, some of these stereotype Kiwi types, it took all of them and then just, through it all like and i mean you know uncle les and uh i kick ass for the lord and all these oh, kind of characters God. uh you know mother ate my dog like th- just these things that fly back here <laughs> and it's set in 1950s when our parents were living and it's just mm-hmm. the bloodiest most fucked up thing yet it's all played and it's romantic so you're talking about like having a through line where you can actually go hey it's kind of a romantic movie at the end it is a romantic movie that's the thing i mean that's the crazy thing about that movie mm-hmm. is like I've seen it. I watch it twice a year. I'm not even joking. I love it so much. And it's like, once you get past the gore, which you never, I don't mean get past it in a way where you're like done with it. I just mean like, once you start looking past it, it's like such a beautiful execution of an easy comic. It like, yeah, you just want Paquita and Lionel to end up together. I do that scene where they like finally come together and kiss and the camera like cranes up on the, on the sort of uh, balcony. And then like that romantic score is like so on the nose, but like, that's the movie. The movie is on the nose. It's not a, it's not a a slight, it's like a Mm -hmm. celebration of sort of, genre and then they like you know they're conceiving their sort of love as his mom is starting to like transform it man 
I could literally talk for two hours about the movie. I, I love it so much. Well, that'll I be a different podcast. <laughs> I show that in my class a lot of the time. Um, when I'm teaching horror, I will show that as like my example of how you use an aesthetic in gore. And I love it because I will always have diehard horror fans that still have to leave the classroom. Um, it is that gross. There's still moments where even my most diehard students will have to like get out. Oh, yeah. The uh, rich and creamy, just the yeah. way I like oh, it. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> no pudding. <laughs> it's still one of my favorite lines. Um, I'm going to actually segue then from that because uh, I feel there's no director on earth who needs to pull a Raimi more than Peter Jackson does, which means uh, kind of step back from giant movies, make a small movie, make it connect to yeah. your humor. Because when Raimi did that with one, of, one of the most, yeah. yeah, with one of the most amazing movies I've ever seen in a cinema, which has dragged me to hell. That movie yeah. is gangbusters when you see it yeah. in, in theaters. Um, but that was another one of your picks. And I thought that was a cool one because you weren't just picking, you know, you could have picked something else, there, but going back with Raimi, but a very different movie. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing about drag me to hell uh, is that the story, like I, in my mind, it's a perfect movie it's a perfect horror movie and here's why i think it's the story is very simple it's very clean and it's it comes from a director who's like i'm just going to create the simplest skeleton and then i'm just going to do what i do times 10 all around it and create something really incredible and sometimes Mm -hmm. the story doesn't have to like have these amazing twists and turns and sort of uh, revelations sometimes like a director working at that level with like finally a budget to actually execute. I mean, that right. That's the only time we've seen him with a budget to do what he does. And he yep. fucking crushes it. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking good. I, I don't want to go back to Peter Jackson, but yes, I would kill for the Peter Jackson's version of dead alive. Just one more. Just one more. I'd love to see it. Yeah. yeah. He got it bogged down saving a country's economy by making Hobbit. <laughs> what can you do? It's, yeah. it's not on yeah. Um, it, well, let's, it, it isn't, isn't that, isn't, uh, isn't like a, um, drag me to hell is like when we were you were sort of you reached out to me you were saying we we're gonna do talk about splastic i was like thinking about the anvil dropping on the head like like you couldn't be more splastic than yeah, wiley coyote yeah, yeah. Is a, like a acme cartoon yeah oh my gosh yeah there's just so much in that that and it it builds on itself it's like sh- this thing will happen but then this thing will happen to push it even further it's just so oh, the, well yeah, the scene in the car car park people just people are screaming out of being grossed out but also laughing at the same time and that's what i think that's what we're talking about horror as a as a core is attraction repulsion at all times and with this genre we're getting them at the exact same second Yep. It might be the only yeah. one where you're laughing and you're also grossed out in the same Completely. moment. And, and somehow, really yeah, it's kind of amazing that you can have this simultaneous repulsion and yeah. hilariousness existing in the same. And capacity. fear and, and fear. Yeah. There's like, yeah. like I was that. Oh, that's for sure. Maybe yeah. Disagree. yeah. yeah. So I, that drag me to hell is actually a scary out of all the ones on your list. That's the one that's actually also a horror in the scary tone yeah right. some of these right. uh, another classic uh, on your list that i'm uh, you know which makes total sense because i think some people think of it as a comedy first is return of the living dead yes mm-hmm. yeah return? this one is one from my childhood that i've always considered to be like a super influential film on me as well um and, and this one it just celebrates the gore in such a comedic way but played entirely straight there is not a single person in this movie who is trying to be funny it's, except the guy says it, brains <laughs> the zombies. I I mean, I think this is both like the funniest and most upsetting horror movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Like I, this movie, like like swings so hard both ways. It's insane that it works. I remember 
This is one of those like late night Cinemax movies. You kind of wake up on the couch. It's playing at your parents' house. Like I think I was in high school, and I think it was the, it was the scene where um, they sort of capture the corpse, like, and they strap it to the table, and they sort of ask it like, "Why do you eat brains?" And she mm-hmm. says. The pain of being dead. <laughs> I can feel myself rotting. Yeah. And I was like, I've never thought about how zombies, why zombies eat. And that like, they're just in eternal pain. And the fact that like, that that plague that isn't, can't be like remedied by a, a bullet to the head. That is some dark, dark, dark shit. That, oh, or the God, scene yeah. where the guy climbs into the furnace. Mm. And like burns himself alive. That melted my brain when I was a kid. I was probably in like second or third grade watching this one. And yeah, the scene of it hurting so bad that he's climbing into the furnace. I just, it's like the first time I ever even thought about suicide. Like that's a thing. No. I mean, that's also so Dan O'Bannon. Like this is a, this is a guy who obviously had a massive depressive streak, but also is an amazing comic voice. And just, so I, I I love some of the, all these movies on the side. I love how they're all quite personal, these movies, you know what I mean? And you might not think so on the surface because they're these big splatter uh, kind of fun films, but they are all have something that there's the person artist is saying, which Mm -hmm. isn't always the case in every horror film, right? Like some of those genre you were talking about in the woods slashers, you know, you might not feel the authorial voice as much in those films. And they all have a very precise aesthetic with the gore as well. Like they all have a very strong look where you can say how the gore is different in Return of the Living Dead from how it is in Evil Dead. And they all kind of have this this strong stylistic difference. Um, It's it's just wild. It's the the existential dread buried underneath Mm. splastic comedy in that movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Is like nothing I've ever seen before. Well, that's it's Buster Keaton. I mean, Buster Keaton is existential dread. It's like he's making you laugh, but he's every second mm-hmm. he's going, "Why am I here?" Yeah. <laughs> he's letting a house drop on him and going, "Ah, oh, missed." <laughs> you and know what the, I mean? Uh, the ultimate "Why am I here?" movie oh, is your that. last title um, on your your kind of big five inspiration list, um, Cemetery Man, which combines it adds another level for me because that one has the repulsion. It has the attraction. And then also it has one of the greatest sex scenes in cinematic history. And so I don't even know what's going We're on. take anymore. a four-minute break for everyone to watch that sex scene. <laughs> Some of you will need two. You can come back and wait in the waiting room. It's so fucking hot. Like, really I don't amazing. even know how to deal with that film and all the feels I feel during that it's movie. It's also so well-directed. This is this movie is on a Raimi level of direction. Um, yeah. Like, it's, it's you know, my, Michelle Sovey, I think it was at Steven. Somebody was saying, like, this is the best film of the year when it came out at the time. Or I think it was Scorsese. And, like, Scorsese mm-hmm. is quoted as saying this is the best film of the year, which is pretty wild. So, I mean, he's... I agree. He, yeah, this, so tell us, when, how, when did you see this one? This was also one of those late night Cinemax, like you catch it 20 minutes in and you're just like, what the fuck is this movie uh, initially for me? And it, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about this movie. It's interesting because this was one of those movies that I owned. I watched a million times. Somebody like broke into my room and stole it at a party. And it was, it's a really hard movie to find mm. now. I don't think it's even, is it even available in Blu-ray? I don't think it is. There was a, there was a one, uh, what's it? What was the company? There was a company that Shameless, I believe, put out a DVD. I don't think it's on Blue. I'm not sure. Oh no, yeah. And it's like, and on Amazon, it's it's expensive. It's like seventy bucks or eighty bucks or something for like a used Blue or uh, DVD. Um, but I just start, but it's on YouTube. The whole thing, of course. And uh, I just was watching, rewatching it again the other night. And uh, and you're right, it's it's directed phenomenally. Like at mm-hmm. the time, like I just the imagery 
was what sold me. But now as a filmmaker myself and watching the complexity of those shots and it like, it starts in really tight on like it's black and then it pulls out through a skull's uh, the, the eye of a skull. It's very panic room. And then it goes through a chair and it pulls up and then Rupert Everett's sitting there and he's like looking all, he's broody and he's like blowing up, blowing zombies brains out. It's it. I mean, I think something about obviously zombie movies are, I think we're inundated with them to a point that it's like, nauseating at this point i'm I'm Mm -hmm. so tired of zombie movies but there was a time where sort of these zombie movies like return of living dead and and cemetery man were just everything to me uh and uh and yeah and then that movie is like they're just all they're all nerdy art movies that that's the thing i've realized sort of after the fact but they had some existential dread to all the ones you've talked about whereas everything now doesn't it's about herds it's the walking dead universe which is just everyone's dead and it's about the living these movies were about the pain of oh what happens if you die we try to bring you back so you can live a little longer like or or have set you know there's some other quality to those older zombie films i think yeah cemetery man for me it feels like a splastic version of an a24 film because it is so much of this existential dread so much so that it actually just as straight to the why do we even fucking bother i mean there's there's nothing why do we bother it is pure like camus the stranger channeled through a zombie film um well, and the is- ending's pretty bleak too so i mean it goes into a pretty so bleak. Pre- yeah. pretty bleak place but you're still you know you're still smiling and laughing by the end so yeah no that that movie needs to be seen uh on a bigger scale i'm not sure what the deal so is. i just looked it up while we were talking um shameless did a dvd and a blu-ray release of it which are affordable but they are are region free, which I will use as my um, regular pitch of why everyone needs a region free Blu-ray. And why player. everyone should go to Diabolic DVD because we know they probably have this. Because <laughs> Diabolic is awesome. One place we know. Um, all right. Well, I think that is a fantastic segue for people to like at least dive into some of these movies if they haven't. Uh, but Mortuary Collection is playing on Shutter, so it's a Shutter original. Is that right? It's a Shutter original, correct? Yeah, we nice. we're, we're coming out as of this recording tomorrow. Yeah. Actually, in a few hours. Okay. Nice. Excellent. So everybody go add it to your watch list right now. And um, yeah, check out the Mortuary Collection. And Ryan, you actually just got to work with Sam Raimi, correct? Did I did. I, I did. That, I did. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Which is surreal. Even to the, yeah, it's, that's the wildest thing. But yeah, we, he did a, um, an anthology series uh, last year called 50 States of Fright, which is on Quibi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know people have been resistant to Quibi for obvious reasons, but uh, it, it is such a cool, it's such a cool series. I mean, it, it's interesting because it's, it's a, it's filmmakers, sort of a diverse group of filmmakers were brought in. Sam basically came in and said like, let them do whatever they want. Like he insisted that we could do whatever we want. So we had all this rope to hang ourselves with. And basically we're each able to make write and direct our own episodes. And I think when you watch the first season, I think there's two seasons available now. Um, It's like, you know, it's working out its kinks because it's tricky to make an anthology series. But Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the most interesting anthology series that that are out there right now, just because the pure sort of freedom that was given to the filmmakers and the resources that we had. I mean, my segment was probably similar to the budget of my feature, if that sort of gives you any idea of Mm. what it was like. That's cool. Um, That's fun. Yeah, so that was cool. And then I'm I'm doing a – I wrote two episodes for season two or season Mm -hmm. three. I guess it's season three now. Um, and, uh, supposedly we're supposed to start shooting those in about, uh, I guess a few months, I guess, whenever people are able to shoot things again. Yeah. Hmm. That's a whole thing. And yeah, that is a whole thing. <laughs> 
Excellent. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Ryan. Um, we are going to keep going um, and dig in on some plastic deep cuts. Um, but Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody check out Mortuary Collection. Amazing, guys. This is so cool. I can't wait to uh, listen to the episode, skip my portion completely because I hate the sound of my voice and uh, hear all the deep cuts. Thanks for coming. I am so glad that Ryan was our first guest on the show because uh, I, I remember talking to him a few years ago, literally probably five years ago on, on uh, two shows ago, Killer POV, <laughs> where he was talking about pulling off this crazy anthology. So, Oh my gosh, yeah. Seeing people, uh, people achieve their dreams, there is nothing cooler than that. Uh, so, And I will say, we won't always have a guest on the show, guys. So just giving you a heads up about that. Sometimes and when we do, it'll often be on a topic and not yeah, not. And- and not somebody who has a recent movie coming out. Like we want this to be a much more kind of topic driven show, but with Ryan, um, you know, we knew we wanted to start with something fun and splat stick seems perfect. And, and there's with- no theaters. There's no, yeah. there's no theaters. So his film's playing on shutter and, and we need to direct people to it. So I think that's great. Yeah. One of the things we've been doing over on Patreon for the last few months uh, is uh, a little show called Deep Cuts, which we're, we do a pick a couple deep cuts to dive into uh, movies off the beaten trail. Sometimes a deep cut to you might be your favorite movie, so it might not be a deep cut to everyone, but most of the time it's usually stuff off the beaten trail. We want to make yeah. sure that's always a part of the show. This is one of the segments I think no matter what our topic is, we're always going to pull at least one deep cut, maybe two uh, for a section. Uh, this week we wanted to keep on point, uh, and you suggested uh, one that I hadn't seen yet, but I'd heard of, you know, my whole life uh, on topic. How have you not seen this? I don't. Maybe it's just availability. I don't know. So even though that Elric is always super quick to remind me that New Zealand and Australia are very different countries, you definitely seem to... Um, oh, I know exploitation of, really well. I don't yeah, know you why. Know, yeah. You know exploitation in Australian cinema incredibly well. Um, so when I had mentioned Body Melt a couple of years ago and you were like, never seen it, what's that? And then it took you this fucking long to see it. I'd seen um, great like images from it. Maybe it's just uh, for whatever the availability, but that is our pick, Body Melt. Uh, for because we wanted to pick something in the in the splatter, you know, obviously splat stick. Uh, this is Philip Brophy, nineteen ninety three, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this oh, one, um, and Philip Brophy, like I looked up what he has done since then. He has written amazing texts on how to use sound and uh, sound composition in movies, like academic texts. Like he has like twenty of them. Okay, well, um, don't so, let that put you off because this movie's utterly bonkers. I will give um, the warning ahead of this movie. There is nothing PC about this movie. Actually, actually, let's something- change that too. There's nothing PC about any of the movies we're going to mention for the rest of the show. <laughs> because from here on in, it goes very un-PC. It's going to get really un-PC for the rest of the show yeah. tonight. But this one particularly, like if you have any trigger warnings, it's in this movie. But you didn't um, really need to say that because you said it was Australian. <laughs> So that's, that's all it takes. That, that is the trigger warning for most of us. It's like, oh, it's Australian. <laughs> so the whole setup of this, it feels very sitcom-y. It feels almost trauma-ish, I'll say, at the top. Wait, wait, and wait, wait, wait is, but not at the start. At the start, no, at the I start, thought I was watching a David Cronenberg movie for the first five minutes. No, at the start, it does. It feels very serious. Yeah. And it is about this suburb um, where they, you find a out that clinic, like a weird there, there's a wellness clinic that is passing out free diet pills to the people in this neighborhood so they can test them. Yeah. And that's just kind of the setup. And but, but it's that 
really glossy at this. Like I was so surprised with the turn in this movie because the first five minutes, it felt like David, it felt like Rabbit's Institution mixed uh-huh. with Michael Crichton type level ideas. It's got this very sexy opening with two naked people, like you know, poking them with a like a reanimator type serum. Really sci-fi. Yeah, and then within a couple minutes, it becomes yeah, like you're saying, it becomes a rural kind of domestic kind of a multi-character storyline. And at one point, it goes totally off the rails with like a weird, almost Texas Chainsaw Massacre type Australian outback characters who are all like. Yeah. Mutants and stuff. And I'm like, what is this doing? And the gore in this is is definitely um, over the top. It's a lot of green. Like it feels, it's not just blood. I mean, like there's there's green in there. Green slime, all sorts of crazy stuff. It's really hyper color. Like it pushes it. And um, the effects in this are are what I find so yeah. charming. Like when it says bodies melt, people literally their bodies start and explode melting. And all sorts um, of and, yeah, and explode. There's there's a lot of goo. And uh, yeah, so this one really goes there. And that's when it gets into what I'll consider to be like a more traditional exploitation, um, where any hot button issues, anything that's sacred is just out the window at that point. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty pretty bonkers. I'm so happy to see this. This one is on Amazon, uh, so you can see it pretty easily now, which is great. And I had a blast. And it says director's cut, so who knows what what else was <laughs> added to this madness. I think I owned a Blu-ray of this eons ago, and I don't anymore because I was going to rewatch it for this. Um, but yeah, I don't know what like the physical media status of this one is. Um, so I'm glad it's on Amazon. Yeah, no, I, I definitely recommend this. So give it a look. That is our deep cut. It is body melt. Um, and then I guess this will be a little bit different. Like I think we, I don't want to get too serious at the end of the show because it feels weird to get all kind of somber. But um, we obviously are people who believe that movies are a serious art form. Right. And we don't believe that movies should be treated like sport. Um, that said, only one movie will survive. Oh, I'm dropping it. Movie fight. <laughs> movie fight. Kill or be killed. Um, we haven't decided what to really label this segment, but <laughs> <laughs> for now, movie fight will do. We decided we will, this end- will change every week. We're just going to end this one with movie. Uh, fight. Well, I don't know. We'll see how much we love this. If you love movie fight, you'll have to tell us. All right. So we've decided we will uh, square off two movies against each other at the end of each episode or, or sometimes or maybe never again. Uh, but we're doing it tonight uh, on a topic. And we will decide if the winner of it, the other one obviously dies forever, but that just means the other one, the one that wins is the one you should watch at home right now. So we have decided to go battle of the New York City goop. Uh, it's New York City splat stick. Okay, well, I'm going New York City goop. Whatever. Okay, fine. We'll There's call it New theory. York City goop. We, I want to do an entire episode on New York City goop or New York City sleaze or however we want to. F- yes, uh, New York yeah. City sleaze core or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Like there's uh, there's a lot there. Well, we decided uh, to pick two old favorites. Actually, it's kind of cool. They're ones from '87, ones from '88. I didn't realize they're so close. But yeah. we we are deciding to pick. We have no idea how this is going to go. By the way, we there were no rules besides the movie fight. Um, but we are pitting <laughs> uh, Street Trash, which is just the greatest, but uh, written by a friend of the show Roy Frumkes. Uh, we are pitting Street Trash up against. Frank Henenlotter's brain damage. Brain damage from '88. Which one will survive? All right, so we'll we'll do pro, our pros and cons pro, uh, first for Street Trash. What what do we love about Street Trash? So for Street Trash, I love that it is trying to be socially conscious. It may be wrapped in God knows what. There may be flying penises and and all. I thought that, that is in the plus common for sure. <laughs> 
Um, but for me, this movie actually is trying to make some type of socioeconomical statement about, you know, kind of the division um, and where poverty lines are being drawn in New York City in the late 80s. Yeah. So this is obviously this is a film and we I mean, who knows who's heard of street trash, I guess. We'll have to get better at that because both of us just assume everyone's wearing a street trash T-shirt. Everyone knows street, you got street uh, trash tattoos, right? Yeah, Melting yeah. dude in toilet. I do. But it is about, largely about largely about homeless community and a very cheap alcohol that is being sold for a dollar called Viper that actually basically liquefies your entire being uh, from the organs out and has uh, you know some some of the grungiest, grossest things you'll ever see on a screen. Not just in the effects, but just even the world of it is so dirty and kind of ugly. But it's also um, a part of New York again that's gone forever. Like the, that yeah. vision of New York doesn't exist. That's what's cool about both these directors. Um, it has yes, it has a crazy flying penis shot uh, that's insane. It has probably the most punk. Uh, visual effects ever by Jennifer Aspinall. They're just Jennifer Aspinall, who I mean, she had done Toxic Avenger, but she went on to do a lot of other just really, really crazy stuff. Um, I think she's on. She was on SNL for a while. But they were um, radical because of the colors. Like she, she instead of going with like realistic, like some of the movies we've talked about up front, where mm-hmm. the color is realistic, we're looking at bl- uh, purples and yellow, bright uh, fluorescent like purples and yellows. And I think there's something so kind of unique and remem- memorable from it. Memorable, but which is crazy because, um, you know, I've spent the, the part of the episode talking about the aesthetic of gore. This movie has such a bleak aesthetic through most of it because all you're looking at is steel and garbage and dirt and grime. And then the most beautiful thing in this movie is the gore. Yeah. When the people are basically decomposing, yeah. When they're decomposing, suddenly you're getting these like techno colors, these bright, vivid colors, and the entire rest of the backdrop is concrete and dirt and brown. And so it really is like the gore is gorgeous in this movie. Um, I will put it in, in my negative column. This movie is bleak. Street trash is not one that I can rewatch in repetition because even the way that the movie ends, it just ends with like this, well, there's no hope. We're all going to die and everything sucks. It it Um, definitely has a bleak outlook and, and the world, the world it's portraying is dark. Um, it, I remember we had, um, Jim on an early show a long time ago. Mm-hmm. No, no, we didn't have Jim. Sorry, we had uh, Roy, the writer. Right. And he told the funniest thing I remember. Another plus column was their ad campaign. I never forgot this one where he said they got all these negative reviews, but they also got positive ones. So they put the on. The, they took a full page newspaper and put all the positive ones on the left hand side, and all the other and the negative ones on the right. And they said, you know, which side of the street are you on? And that yeah. was the ad campaign. And I was like, oh, that's a great, you know, embracing. Yes, and ex- it's exploitation films, and so. Uh, I think that's uh, the word "fuck" is spoken 128 times apparently. So I did, did make you count? no. I looked on IMDb, so it's probably not true. Um, <laughs> and I will say this: it, this film is gorgeously shot. I mean, it's not just the gore that is the pretty part, even though that we are looking at these absolutely disgusting, desolate landscapes and these, for lack of a better way of putting it, grimy people. Like they are not clean in this movie, um, but we are seeing it shot beautifully. Um, the whole rumor behind it is that um, the, the guy who, the cinematographer wanted to test out his new Steadicam equipment. Well, he, he and, became a famous, Jim, he's the director. Yeah. He, he became yeah. a famous cinema, uh, Steadicam operator. Yeah, and he ended up doing a lot of Steadicam work for Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and his Star still, Trek movies um, and all yeah, that Star stuff. Trek yeah. movies, crazy stuff. But this was like supposedly the first film where he was testing out his Steadicam skills. Yeah. And so it has these amazing roving cameras 
camera shots going through these absolutely disgusting junkyards and stuff like that. So Okay, so that's our plus, mostly, for Street Track. Yeah. We're not going to make a decision. Uh, versus Frank Hanlon-Lauder's Brain Damage, uh, which has, let's just say in the plus column, one of the greatest little creatures ever in a movie. Elmer. Elmer. Cute. And, and I think what sets this film apart from a lot of movies from this period is that Almer's voice isn't a cutesy voice. See, that would have been easy to do. You could have had him had oh, I'm a, something like a gremlin or whatever. Instead, it's John Zachary, you know, who's, yeah. who's a horror host, and it's a very adult voice, and it's a very and serious he's, voice. He's charming, and he yeah. sings. Name another fucking movie where you get Zachary singing Glenn Miller um, as voiced through a little demonic thing that looks like a turd. Uh, um, I doubt so, there's yeah. many, but that's yeah, right. <laughs> so we're putting that in the very, so uh, Helen Lauder is a great personal filmmaker. And I, I think mm-hmm. every movie he makes has, you know, this handmade feel about something. It seems like he's thinking about or going through. And that's one of the things, this is a film about a, a, a guy's having these ways well, problems with his head, right? Like almost like coming yeah. from almost a headache kind of idea. So for me, this one, um, it brings in this psychological, this kind of sociological aspect as well, because what, when I watch this movie now, I didn't catch it when I was watching it, you know, in the late eighties, um, as, as a kid, but what I see now is him kind of embracing and, and trying to figure out a way to come to terms with the drug problem in New York city. Um, because what this ultimately is the parasite gives this guy uh, some type of liquid in his brain like that makes euphoria. him feel yeah. yeah, it's total euphoria and he becomes incredibly addicted to it. So he has to continuously be feeding Almer brains from people yeah. so that Almer will keep giving him the juice. And so even though that it is this kind of weird hen and lotter vehicle to get us there that feels very gross in New York and grimy and weird characters and caricature and over the top, it ultimately is a story about drug addiction. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And it's and it's got an interesting kind of like, you know, there's romance and, and it's youthful characters. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really original film. That's the thing about it. It's like I haven't seen another movie quite like Brain Damage in this in the space, even by Hannah Lauder's other movies. It's still quite different. Has these a couple moments where the visuals are really artistic, like just the liquid filling in the space around the guy's head. And so I, if you haven't seen this one, I think, uh, you know, I definitely recommend it uh, again. Super weird. There is a scene that probably is not the most PC, but it's also so unforgettable. Both of them have crazy. One has a flying penis, Both and one has a, are, are completely on PC. One has attack of the penis. I guess it would be called yeah. uh, attack of the Elmer penis. But um, either way, both totally unique movies. So it's unfair that one of them has to die forever. I have my vote. Uh, I have to say, uh, and you kind of you kind of let it slip at the start when we talked about street trash. Ultimately, street trash is a little too bleak. Street Trash, I find it hard to rewatch. I've seen Street Trash a number of times, but I always think of it as, let's just say, hypothetically, big retro screening at the Egyptian happening next week, and it's in 35 millimeter. I'm not sure I would go see Street Trash again, but I would be the first. Oh, totally <laughs> and, and you made it sound so much better <laughs> putting it at the Egyptian and 35. I know, uh, I know. Uh, but I would be first in fucking line. For brain damage. Yeah, I think there's sequences of street trash that might top, top any sequence in brain damage, if you know what I mean. But brain damage mm-hmm. is such a personal vehicle, and it's so it's like got some visionary moments. And so I am with you. We are going to be in an agreement for the first movie fight ever. The winner that you should watch tonight is brain damage. Movie uh, fight to the extreme! Killer be killed, and you can tweet at us your anger about <laughs> yeah. 
why Street Trash deserved to win this one. Why Street Trash is better than Brain Damage. It. Uh, that is episode one. Uh, it's a little longer than our normal episodes will be because we had a lot to get through. Um, we had but, to do intros and yeah. learn about last year at Marion Bad. Exactly. You, know, you, can, you can follow the show notes somewhere. I don't, I'm not going to write them. Um, <laughs> uh, so you can follow. Obviously, the show is uh, Colors of the Dark on a bunch of places. Um, Instagram, <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. We are so excited um, to be to be doing this, guys. Elric and I are thrilled to be kind of doing something that feels like we're just kind of channeling our brains. Yeah. Um, this this is a very us show. Should we call it brain dump? Um, brain dump. Brain dump. This is our brain dump. All the colors of the brain dump. All the colors. Um, yeah. So, anyways, thank you all so much. Um, we will be back in two weeks. Um, we may be going more frequent after a little while, but we're going every two weeks for at least through Halloween. Um, and uh, yes, we'll be back in two weeks with another Colors of the Dark podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us. Big thank you to Fangoria, and a big thank you to our sound engineer, Ernie. <laughs> Got to end with an Ernie plug. <laughs> Always, we're out. All right. Oh, 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 oh,